our Old Testament lesson this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. Psalm 42, verses 1 through 11. Should be found on page 879 in your pew Bibles. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and we thank you for your word which you have given to us. Lord, you have given us your word that we would know better who you are, that we would know better who we are, and that we would know better how uh, we relate to you and you relate to us. Lord, we ask that this morning as we hear your word read and proclaimed that you would give us ears to hear what you have said, what you're saying. Lord, that you would give us minds that are ready uh, to think through these things carefully and accurately. Lord, that you would give us hearts that are ready to put these things into practice in our lives. That we would truly be changed. That we would be conformed by your word and by your spirit more into the people you've made us to be, those who look like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, So my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one. With shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep, and the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Our New Testament lessons, Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. This is what was just referenced in the children's sermon. This secret that Paul has discovered, even as he's... And living it out, he's, even as he's sitting in prison. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in, 
because I am in need. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if anybody here has ever uh, done any sort of Bible memory where you're memorizing Bible verses, maybe in a Sunday school class where you get a certain number of gold stars on the wall for every verse you memorize or something like that. That sounds familiar. I'm seeing <laughs> kind of some smirks and nods. Um, if you got to choose the verses, I suspect you'd chose based not on which verses were most meaningful to you, but just by sheer word count. The shorter the verse, the easier this is going to be to memorize, the more gold stars I get. Done. Here we go. And if that's the case, you've probably memorized John 11.35. John 11.35 is known as the shortest verse in the Bible. You could memorize it right now. (laughs) If you haven't already. John 11.35 just simply says, Jesus wept. That's it. Here's the thing. With uh, memorizing Bible verses, uh, which if you don't know this, I'm kind of a fan of memorizing Bible verses, but not for gold stars and not based on word length, but actually uh, memorizing verses that have a particular meaning in your life and, or what it has to do with your understanding of who God is because of the way in which his word can actually change you as a person. And so memorization, not for points, not for stickers, but memorization for transformation. And in order to do that, there are a couple things that you need to do besides just learn the words. One of the things you need to do is learn what those words mean. But beyond that, you've got to learn what's going on around the verse you're memorizing to understand when this verse comes into play, what it's talking about, and therefore what it means. And we're going to do that with this uh, verse. It's a very famous verse, uh, Jesus wept, but we're going to look at the whole surrounding context. Where does this verse come in? What's going on? Why is Jesus weeping? And then what in the world does that have to do with us? So for that, we're going to take a look at... uh, John 11, verses 28 through 37. This is actually in a uh, larger story, and we're going to cover some of that as well. But we're going to look specifically at John 11, 28 through 37. I'm going to read it first, then I'll explain what's going on. It says, After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, uh, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. 
Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And that's where we stop. Now, we just jumped right into the middle of a story. And we started with pronouns like she did this. After this happened, what in the world is going on? So let's go back through and take this uh, a bit more carefully uh, and take a closer look at this to understand what is going on. So this is the uh, time where Jesus had gotten word that one of his good friends was sick. And uh, he wasn't in town. And, uh, and Jesus, it says, and we talked about this two weeks ago, that Jesus didn't go immediately to the family. Which sounds kind of harsh. And you're thinking, but I thought he loved them. And John is very careful to say the reason that he didn't go immediately is actually because he loved them. And it's because he loved them that he didn't go immediately. And we go, that doesn't make any sense to me. I would think if he loved, he'd go immediately. If he doesn't love, he won't go immediately. But John says it's because he loved, he doesn't go. And then we looked at uh, last week how when he finally does go, Lazarus has already died. In fact, he dies before Jesus ever leaves. And then when Jesus gets there, Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. And Martha, <clears throat> Lazarus' sister, uh, Martha meets Jesus outside of town, comes over to him and says, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And they have this whole conversation. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And so uh, after their conversation, she goes back, back home, back to where her sister Mary is. And that's where this story picks up. And so she goes back and she says, uh, you know, after she had said, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who's come into the world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. So what we're going to look at... Uh, first is just the way that people respond to what all happens. So first response we have is how does Mary respond when she hears that Jesus has come? How does she respond? Martha comes in and says, the teacher is asking for you. How's she respond? What's she do? She pops right up and heads out (laughs) quickly is the word that's used there. She gets up quickly and goes, uh, and goes to him. He's still on the outside of the village. Still at the place where Martha had met him. There's some debate as to why he's out there. Maybe it's because the tomb would have been on the outskirts of town, and so he's, he knows where he's actually headed. It's not so much to the house. He's headed to the tomb, and so he hangs out there waiting for her or possibly just so they can have a more private conversation rather than going into the house where everyone is. But it doesn't matter because everybody comes too. And so that's the, the second response is how do all the other people who are mourning, how do they respond when Mary gets up quickly and leaves? They're curious, right? And so they respond 
with uh, curiosity. And they go and they follow Mary thinking, oh, she's going to the tomb. We're going to go follow her and see what's going on. But she's not going to the tomb. She's going to Jesus. And when she gets there, how does she respond to Jesus' arrival? To him calling her to be with him. How does she respond? She's come quickly and she gets right to him. And then she says, <laughs> Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And what else does she do? She falls at his feet. Mary shows up several times through uh, the various gospel accounts. And it's remarkable how she's always at Jesus's feet. <laughs> And here it is again. And she falls at his feet and it says that he sees her weeping. And so presumably she's also weeping. She responds to Jesus vulnerably. She says the same words that her sister said, at least the beginning. Martha, when she came out and saw Jesus, you know what she said? Verse 21, this is back a bit. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Like Martha's able to kind of hold it all together and have this conversation, but it's the same words. And uh, one commentator I read on this uh, said something I think is probably true, that the reason they both are saying the same words is probably because this had been a running conversation in the house for the last couple days. I mean, imagine if you had a really good close friend who was a really good doctor but they were out of town. They were overseas doing medical missions and someone that you love dearly gets sick with something that they're the expert in, right? They can't get back in time. Your loved one dies. And what are you saying? If only they had been here. If my friend, the doctor had been here, they could have done something, but now it's too late. And so that's the conversation that was probably going on in this house. And so when Martha comes out to Jesus, she says, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And Mary comes out to Jesus and says, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. In other words, they're both saying, we believe that you are someone who can heal, but you weren't here. But there's a little difference in what they say too. They start the same way, but Martha can like hold it together and have a conversation. And Mary just like gets that first sentence out and that's it. And she just breaks and she is at his feet weeping. Where do you go from here? So she responds vulnerably. And how does Jesus respond to her? How does he respond to all those who are weeping there around her? Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. We talked last week about how uh, imperfectly we do what Jesus does perfectly in meeting people where they are and helping them where they need to go. And how Jesus gets this right every time. And in this situation, we see that when Martha comes out and she says, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And then she goes on and has a further conversation. And Jesus just has the conversation with her and continues to push her 
in, uh, in where she needs to go. For Mary, she comes out and she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And that's it. That's all she can get out. And she breaks down and she's weeping at his feet. And Jesus doesn't say to her, your brother will live again. I'm the resurrection and the life. Why doesn't he say this to Mary? He said it to her sister. Why doesn't he say it to Mary? Because that's not where she is. She's at his feet, weeping. And the way that Jesus responds to Mary, even to the same words that, uh, she, that her sister had used, the way that Jesus responds to her is not to the words, but to the heart. That's how he always responds. Not to what's just presented on the surface, but what's really going on. He meets us where we really are, and he meets Mary where she really is. And where she is is broken. Where she is is intense grief, and he meets her right there. And it says he is uh, deeply moved in spirit and troubled, and he weeps. There is considerable debate of how this uh, verse ought to be translated where it says he's deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Um, because the, the Greek there is really something to do with like he snorted like a horse <laughs> kind of thing. Well, what, how do you snorts like a horse within himself kind of thing? You're like, what does that even mean? How do you put that in English in a way that makes sense? Well, here's one way to do it. But another uh, idea behind this is that it's just this being deeply moved is he's moved in anger. Every time that this is, um, this is used throughout Scripture, this expression, it's always in some sort of like a stern rebuke or a warning or it's a forceful kind of a thing. And it's this response of that's not to be done. That's not how it's supposed to be. And so when Jesus is deeply moved in spirit, what, what is going on here? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus said earlier that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but he has come that people would have life. And now what is he facing? He's about to head to the tomb of someone who has died. And he is surrounded by people who are deep in their grief and their sorrow because of this one who has died. Doesn't it make sense that Jesus' response would be, this is not how it's supposed to be? Doesn't it make sense that if the author of life is confronted with that which seeks to kill and destroy, that his response would be, this is not the way it's supposed to be? I mean, we look back in, um, in Malachi, there's this uh, passage that uh, talks about how God hates divorce. That's not a popular passage with a lot of people. That's because it's been really not used well. <laughs> as people tend to uh, make it sound like that means God hates divorced people, which is not the case. In fact, the reason that God hates divorce is because he loves his people and he knows the pain that divorce causes and the pain it causes his children, the pain and the brokenness that it causes in relationships, not only between uh, those who have been married, but for others around as well. It is a painful thing. And this is why when Jesus gets asked about, well, is it right to divorce for any reason? How does he answer the question? Well, it's been permitted because of hard hearts, but he says, that's not the way it's supposed to be. 
That's not the way it was from the beginning. That the way it's supposed to be is people actually being united, the two becoming one. That's how it's supposed to be. And it's when that gets torn apart that's, that causes pain, deep, deep pain. And that's why God hates that. It's because of his love for his children, how he wants good for them. And this is why uh, you look at the way that God creates things in the beginning, Genesis 1. You see how everything is created. And it's, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then you move on and you get into chapter 3 and the sin comes in and there's brokenness throughout and now death has come into the world and it just messes everything up. It messes up our relationship with God. It messes up our relationship with each other. It messes up our relationship with the whole creation. But if you flip all the way to the end, (laughs) there comes a time where that will all be undone. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death. There will be no more tears. That day is coming when all will be made right and be made how it's supposed to be again. And yet, that's not where we are now. And so as Jesus is in the midst of the world in where it's not how it's supposed to be right now, what is his response? It's brokenness. It's grief. It's being deeply moved in spirit. It's snorting like a horse inside at how this is not the way it's supposed to be. And he weeps. There are a lot of different ways that the various... uh, and world religions make sense of the pain we experience in this world. But there's only one that talks about the God of the universe inhabiting this world and experiencing the pain himself in order to deal with it and do something about it. When we look at Paul sitting in prison saying, you know, I've learned the secret of being uh, content in any and every situation. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. When he uh, also says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, pray and with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When Paul is talking like this from prison, he's saying, don't worry. He's not saying, don't worry about this stuff. It's no big deal. He's not saying that at all. When he's saying, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, he's not saying, that stuff doesn't matter at all. What he's saying is, I have learned that there is a God who created all of this and who is not okay with things being not the way they're supposed to be. But he is a God who is not standing far off and going, well, that's a shame. But he is a God who has actually entered into the pain of humanity in order to do something about it. He is a God who comes near to his people and who cries with them because things are not the way they're supposed to be who enters into the brokenness of the world and lets the brokenness of this world break him in order that he can bring 
healing to the whole world, to our hearts and to our relationships and ourselves and our creator, ourselves and each other, ourselves and all creation. This is what we see at the end, but that's not where we are now. And so now we get to rejoice with each other as we see signs of this victory over sin and death. But we also are commanded to mourn with each other as we grieve the ways that we're not there yet, that there still is sin and sickness and death and pain and sorrow. A while back, uh, I had this prayer that uh, I, I didn't want to be ruled by instinct. I didn't want to be like an animal where I just am following after desires. I pray, God, I want to be human, not animal. <laughs> Truly human. And what was weird is the response that I got. It came clear to me in my head, and it was not what I was expecting. But it was just this prepare to cry more. I was like, what does that mean? And then I read a passage like this, and it makes sense. Jesus is truly divine, but he's also truly human. And a lot of times what we try to do is only be partly human. And we try to uh, remove ourselves from the pain and the brokenness because we don't want to get hurt. We don't like how that feels. We don't want to go there. But Jesus, in being truly human and showing us what that means to be truly human, he goes there. He allows the brokenness of the world to break his heart. He goes to a wedding and he makes, turns the water into wine, rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. And he goes here to a funeral and he weeps with those who are weeping. I don't know where you are right now. How things are going in your life today or this week or this month or this year. But I do want you to know that the God who created you knows what's going on, is with you in the midst. This is what Emmanuel means, God with us. And what we see here in this short little verse, Jesus wept is a part of what that looks like for him to be with us, for him to care about the brokenness in this world, for him to care about the brokenness in our lives. And what we'll see in the weeks to come is uh, what he's going to do about it. In fact, we're not skipping ahead yet, but what he's about to do at the tomb will have a big impact on what is going to happen in the whole world. We'll look at that later. But for now, we're going to look at how the people responded to Jesus weeping.
How do they respond? They see him weeping. What do they make of it? Two things. There's always multiple responses, aren't there? (laughs) Every time Jesus says something, does something, it seems like some, you know, made this out of it, some made this. Well, this time we have, you know, good responses, but I think they're both responses of blindness. I don't think they truly understood what was going on here. And so they made sense of it as best they could. Some said, you know, see how he loved him. In other words, he's crying because Lazarus is dead and gone, never to be seen again. Is that why Jesus is crying? No. (laughs) If you've read ahead, you know that's not why he's crying. And then some others said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And what are they still thinking? The same thing Martha was thinking. The same thing Mary was thinking. If he had been here, he could have done something. But now it's hopeless. Is that right? If you've read ahead, you know it's not hopeless. And that's where I want to leave us. Is with two things to keep in mind. One (laughs) is that whatever we're going through, he knows and he cares. And two, (laughs) however bad things look from our perspective, if he's in it, it's never hopeless. Amen? Amen.